All right, Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 18 through 22. I think it's, uh, if, if my perusing stuff in the line at Save Mart is correct, I think it's the 30th anniversary of the movie Jaws. Uh, one of the great horror classics. One or two people gets killed in that movie, I think. That's a kind of an inside joke. First time we let our, our uh, kids, they were young adults by the, at the time, I think. Or maybe I'm making that up too. Who knows? I thought, oh, you can see Jez, you know, and, and they said, well, is it, is it going to be scary? And we did. We hadn't seen it since it was in the theaters, you know. It was like, well, maybe one or two people get killed, you know, like in the first minute. But uh, anyway, probably my favorite scene in the movie takes place below deck in the Orca. That's that crazy boat that uh, they're out on. Quint and Chief Brody and Hooper are all discussing their various wounds and scars. Quint asks Hooper to feel a permanent bump on his head that he acquired in a fight with a cop on St. Patrick's Day in Boston. Hooper tells him he's got that beat and reveals the bite scar from a moray eel. Not to be outdone, Quint describes why his arm will no longer fully extend. He was injured in an arm wrestling contest at, he says, an Oki bar in San Francisco. Hooper and Quint then swap bite stories, shark bite stories. Meanwhile, Chief Brody sheepishly looks at his appendicitis scar. He stays out of it because he doesn't have any real wounds to speak of. Hooper thinks he's won. You remember when he dramatically points to his chest and he says that that's where Mary Ellen Moffat broke his heart. But then it gets really heavy in really one of the great monologues of all film. Brody asks Quint about a scar on his arm. It's from a tattoo removal. Quint describes how he survived the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, the World War II ship that delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb, he says, and how the sharks attacked the men in the water awaiting a rescue that no one expected would come. Pretty heavy stuff. But it's an interesting scene. It's a, a moment of rare camaraderie for those three guys. They aren't really getting along and... Uh, things don't really go well on that voyage, but uh, they, they swap scar stories. The Apostle Paul would win any scar contest among believers over who suffered the most for the sake of the gospel. I'm not saying they had these contests, uh, but if they did, uh, you didn't want to go up against Paul. Whenever the Apostle Paul discusses suffering, I think it's a good idea to refresh our minds with the trials that he endured. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. It's either up on the screen or you can just follow along. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes, above measure. Those are certain kinds of beatings. In prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." 
Paul wrote these words, we believe, in 56 A.D. He would live another 10 years before being martyred by beheading. He wrote those words that we just read before he was almost beaten to death in the court of the Gentiles in Jerusalem, before another shipwreck, the famous one on the island of Malta, and before being bitten by that poisonous snake whose venom was always fatal. Uh, And so Paul uh, really suffered for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Jesus told him what great things he must suffer for his name's sake, and he did. And so just keep those things in mind as we explore the next several verses. Uh, And Paul brings up this topic of the nature of the times in which we live and how suffering uh, really is uh, a key theme. In verse 18 he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And as I just said, we need to understand that sufferings are a dominant feature of this present time in which we are living He's going to explain why in verse 20. Uh, and, and it's just mind-blowing uh, to, to remember Paul's suffering, read it out loud, and then have him say, those kinds of things, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Uh, it, it's as if Paul is saying, there's, there's no amount of suffering that could sway my opinion that God's glory is coming and that it's a great thing Uh, and we're just going to patiently wait for it. Now, this doesn't mean we're all going to suffer the same way. Indeed, a lot of people seem to cruise through life. Some people, you know, we judge and and we have our own ways of measuring things, but some, some people seem to have more than their fair share of suffering. Others seem to be getting by. Of course, we're only seeing a slice of a person's life. We don't know what's going to happen, but... um, it's, he's talking here more about the characteristic of the world in which we live. Not everybody, not even every Christian is going to suffer the way Paul did. But if you look around you, you don't have to go too far to see terrible suffering. I think that uh, you know, whether you're a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of person, the world is a place of suffering, uh, especially for most of the people in the world that are outside civilized countries or... Uh, you know, the West and that kind of a thing. I mean, suffering, you could easily make a case that suffering is the one word that you would choose to describe the condition of humanity. We should consider, he says, or judge our individual sufferings not worthy of comparison to the glory that shall be revealed in you. In other words, rather than getting all worked up over our sufferings, we should simply accept them as par for the course and keep serving the Lord. Now, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? That's par for the course. We make such a big deal over suffering, but even more over the sufferings of others. We feel as though we're not very Christian if we tell others to endure or to persevere or to tough it out. Use Paul as an example of a more biblical way to treat sufferings. When on his way to Jerusalem, Paul was repeatedly warned through prophecy that imprisonment and sufferings awaited him there. The believers along the way begged and pleaded with him to not go there. And so he would come to the local Calvary Chapel uh, and uh, they would have a little afterglow service and somebody there who had the gift of prophecy or several of them would get up and uh, Agabus did it at one point, but others, and they would, they would say, you know, Paul, you're going to be thrown into prison and, and uh, 
mistreated and you're going to suffer if you, you know, as you get to Jerusalem. Uh, and they obviously, you know, like us, everyone interpreted that as God's warning that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. I mean, what kind of an idiot would receive a prophecy like that if when you go to Jerusalem you're going to be beat up for the sake of the gospel and imprisoned? I mean, you wouldn't have to tell me more than once. And I'd be headed the other direction, you know. Uh, but Paul knew that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. In fact, this is such an interesting moment in the life of Paul. A lot of commentators take it upon themselves to second-guess the Apostle Paul. I mean, not that he was perfect, but they second-guess him and they say, well, this is a situation in which Paul was wrong. God was warning him not to go. But the truth is, if you read those prophecies, there's no warning to not go. There's just an announcement of what's going to happen when you get there. And so the biggest trial, I think, was the begging and pleading uh, of the people to try and get him to not go, to not enter into his mindset, to not understand that, you know, on, on the one hand, everywhere you went, if you were the Apostle Paul, you were being beat up anyway. And so for somebody to say to you, man, when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to beat you up. Okay. Is there any place I can go where I'm not going to be imprisoned or beat up or uh, uh, mistreated? I mean, and so, and yet, it's an, interesting because the Christians, they all immediately think that that kind of suffering is, is something that is, is, you shouldn't really sign on for. Uh, and Paul thought otherwise. He accepted it as part of his necessary service to the Lord. And so with compassion, of course, we need to adopt the attitude of Paul sometimes towards others. And, you know, as, as many of you know, I mean, when I was a young Christian, and I, when you're a young Christian, I mean, you just don't really always think things through all the way. And I would hear messages about how God wants to, you know, put you in a trial, kind of like a classroom, you know, the, the classroom of suffering or something. And he wanted to teach you a particular lesson, and then once he taught you the lesson, you graduated and you moved on. And if you're not careful, you give people the impression that you might suffer for a little while. It could be even be intense. But then as soon as you learn the lesson, you know, hurry up and learn the lesson and then everything will be fine. And then as you get older and you hang around Christians a lot, you find out that there's some Christians, either they never get the lesson or they're just going to suffer for their whole life. Because there's some sufferings that, that are uh, chronic and lifelong. It's not a, a momentary thing. Uh, and so I think we need to be careful sometimes. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to heap problems on people, and, and you know, I don't want to make it seem worse than it is. But um, you know, sometimes people need to understand that this is this is your lot right now. You're 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 suffering for the Lord. This is God's call. He's allowing this. We can sure pray that you'd be healed. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. See that in the Scripture, and you know, until God tells us to not pray for you, we'll continue to do that and we'll, we'll cry with you and we'll suffer with you as much as possible. Uh, but um, in the meantime, while you're suffering, let's, let's uh, you know, if, if we were just a group of men, I'd say let's man up. Let's, you know, quit crying about it and, and figure that this is what God is allowing. Have you prayed about it? Yeah. Uh, you know, Paul prayed three times for a, a tremendous suffering. I mean, <laughs> all the sufferings he went through, something really bothered him. I mean, after all these things, 
uh, shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and, you know, being flogged and beaten with rods and all. And then there was a thorn in his flesh, he said, and, and for that I prayed three times. I mean, it was something that really, ro- it must have really hurt. It must have been really serious in that sense. And then God revealed to him that, no, that's good for you. It's a thorn in the flesh to keep you from pride and to see the, that your uh, strength comes through your weakness and all of that. And so Paul accepted it. And so, you know, I mean, we need to be careful. We're not, you know, we're not God in a person's life. We can't tell them what God is doing, what He's not doing. But while they're suffering and they're not experiencing any relief, we need to weep with those who weep and let them know that this is a time to endure and to press on. Uh, largely, the American church has lost a sense or a theology of suffering. And everything is geared towards uh, getting out of suffering uh, and uh, not having to deal with it. And so, very interesting stuff. What's, uh, or excuse me, when shall glory be revealed in us? Well, certainly the Lord glorifies Himself through our sufferings. But this looks forward to the future, as we next read in verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Revealing is from the same Greek root word that is used of the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you see Him at the end of the Bible, in the last book of the Bible, and He's revealed in all His glory. We are the sons of God in this verse, all those who will one day be resurrected. The final revealing of the sons of God, that moment in which all believers in Jesus Christ will have been resurrected or in their glorified eternal bodies along with the Lord, man, that's what it's all moving towards. The consummation of all things when every believer from all time is in a glorified physical body, a perfect body, along with the Lord and we are in eternity. So that's the revealing of the sons of God says here that God's creation is said to have an earnest expectation with regards to our being revealed. It means that God's creation, what we might call the universe, if we don't want to be overly technical, it's moving towards a definite purpose. So creation exists for a reason. There's a purpose, and the purpose it's moving towards is that God would have uh, reveal us as His sons in our perfect state. And so, obviously, you know this already if you're a Christian. The, the universe isn't a random result of some big bang or anything else like that. No, it was created with a purpose, and it's now on track for that purpose to be realized and fulfilled. Creation eagerly awaits for the sons of God to be revealed. I used to eagerly await Christmas morning, remember, to open my gifts. I used to think when I was a kid I would never fall asleep course 10 minutes into it I was asleep but you know when you're a kid you're so nervous about Christmas morning and and I thought I'd never fall asleep and then the next thing I know we had a thing at our house where uh, they'd all my mom and dad would always wake us up by playing a record remember record phonograph record you know little uh, was it third 45 a little 45 rpm you know I saw mama kissing Santa Claus I think is what and and you'd hear that and you'd, ah, and you'd go crazy opening your presents because you were eagerly waiting to open that, to see those gifts revealed to you. Paul wasn't getting weird or new ages, but the idea is that the very universe is looking forward to the consummation of God's plan for us. God's creation was good until Adam and Eve sinned. Then it began to feel the effects of their sin. Now it awaits 
the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. It's good to be reminded that we live in a fallen world. When people wonder why God allows so much suffering, the answer is that man sinned. I read this story this week in a, in, in a, a book I'm reading. Uh, a newspaper invited folks to write letters answering the question, what's wrong with the world? A guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton sent a letter to the editor. His answer to their question, what's wrong with the world, was, I am. Period. And then he signed his name. The problem with the world is people. There's nothing. The people brought problems on the world. The, the state of the universe is our fault. How so? Well, Adam was representing us in the Garden of Eden when he willfully sinned. Theologians call this representation by Adam the federal view of the fall. This view teaches that Adam acted as a representative of the entire human race. With the test that Adam... Uh, excuse me, that God set before Adam and Eve, he was testing all of mankind. Adam's name means man or mankind. Adam was the first human being created. He stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden to act not only for himself, but for all of his future descendants. When Adam sinned, the repercussions of sin were felt throughout all of God's creation. We've already seen this previously in Romans. This is nothing new. In Romans 5, for example, Paul makes several observations. Verse 12 through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin. Verse 15, by the one man's offense many died. Verse 18, through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And verse 19, by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. And so, like it or not, when Adam sinned, God uh, said it was going to affect every other human being and the material creation as well. At the same time, when Adam sinned, God came to him and laid out for him the plan of redemption. God preached the gospel to Adam in that garden. He let him know that he would come to redeem the human race. I don't know how much Adam understood about the gospel in, in terms of what we know today. Uh, I mean, God didn't use the name Jesus Christ. He didn't uh, give all the details. The Bible is an unfolding drama of redemption as we see detail upon detail. But God preached the gospel to them. He indicated that he would come and uh, he would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. It's called the proto-evangelism, the first evangelism. And, and so the Lord came into that. And God is still moving to correct what we have distorted. One day creation will be renewed. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Creation was tied to our decision in the Garden of Eden. When we fell into sin, sin affected all of creation. God made it that way. It says here He made it subject to that decision. But He subjected it in hope. Things won't always be as they are. The future is full of hope. Uh, not that we will change the world or the world will become a better place through our efforts, but that God will redeem the world when the sons of God are revealed. That's what history is moving towards. And so, while I think we probably have gotten, uh, in some senses, soft on, uh, you know, providing help for people, and, uh, you know, there's a whole movement within the Christian church now, the social gospel and, and justice and all that. And, and it's not all bad, because I think a lot of times we're totally ignoring issues that we could, you know, I mean, Jesus, 
when he comes back, you know, in his second coming, there's going to be some people, he says, you know, you didn't, you didn't visit me in prison, you didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't do anything to help me, and so I don't know you. I don't have any idea that you really knew me because there was nothing about you that, that reached out to others. I mean, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He, in a sense, disrobed himself of his deity in order to take on the filthy rags of humanity. Uh, and so there is a responsibility that we have to reach out to others and to help other individuals. We, you know, we can't just kind of slough that off. Uh, and yet, the ultimate hope is going to be that coming of the Lord in glory, revealing the sons of glory, uh, and then changing the creation uh, as well. I think we ought to be good stewards of God's creation, and even more so in light of its fallen condition. But ultimately, God will resolve the issue of nature and the environment and these kinds of things. And He will, verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Uh, John Corson says this, Creation is hurting. Why? Because all creation was cursed when man sinned in the Garden of Eden. Consequently, the more you study nature, along with its beauty, the more you see its cruelty. We enjoy the delicate flower, but shudder at the devastating flood. Earthquakes and tornadoes, thunder and avalanche are as much a part of nature as gentle streams and peaceful meadows. That is why nature groans and waits for the day when the king comes back and for the day when the trees of the field will clap their hands. Once we receive new bodies, we enjoy the glorious liberty God intended for our first parents and their offspring. We'll be free to love God, to fellowship with Him forever, and we'll be free to enjoy His created universe as children playing in an amusement park. I was realizing that we, Pam was kind of making fun of me because this whole thing, you know, with, with social networking now, things kind of take on a life of their own. And so somebody, somebody was talking about dolphins, and I have finally admitted to Pam that I, dolphins creep me out. I just find dolphins to be really creepy. Now, Pam, she'd swim with dolphins. She's an animal lover. She'd, she'd think it'd be great, you know, grab the fin and be led around. I know what that dolphin is thinking. It's weaponized and it's, it's after me. It's just all there is to it. And then, now, and this is kind of sad. I'm just admitting this to you. It's, it's a cathartic moment for me. Maybe you can, you know, just share this with me. I, I really don't like any animals. I, I, I mean, I have a do- I'm afraid of my own dogs. Always have been. Pam's always making fun of me, you know. Especially, you know, dogs, they just don't like to get their nails clipped, you know? You know what I mean? And, and, and I don't know how many times my dog, and she can tell, I'm just, and she, and, and she always says the same thing. She goes, the dog can tell you're afraid. And I go, yeah, that's because I am afraid. <laughs> yeah, that's why the dog can tell I'm afraid. I, and so I realized I'm afraid of every animal on the planet. And so I'm kind of looking forward to the day that I can put my hand in... Forget the child, I'm going to put my hand into the adder's den. Yeah, I'm going to play with lions and lambs. I, animals creep me out. You just never know what they're going to do. You Admit it. Dogs, your own dog bites you. Horses? Wow. <laughs> they're scary. Big, giant teeth, you know. And, uh, I mean, it's just weird, the kinds of... So, I'm just not an animal. I love animals, in the, but I love them from a distance. Cats? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just... 
you know, and these are all the domesticated animals. Then you get down into the list of, you know, all the things that live in Florida and you're really, you know, you're gone. I mean, it's crazy. Chimpanzees. Oh, they tear your face off. I mean, anyway, so I, I just I, I, there, creation is in a fallen condition and it's not God's fault. It's my fault. In the, in the theology of the Bible says it is my fault because I chose to disobey God when I was in Adam and he was representing me. And again, before we get too excited about all that, you say, well, I don't want Adam to represent me. Well, if he doesn't represent you in the garden, then Jesus can't represent you on the earth. And that's a representation I want. I want the Lord to be my representative. I want him to be the second man, the second Adam, so that what he does, I can also enter into as well. Uh, And uh, that's just the way it works. And so, one day we're going to have this glorious liberty of the sons of God, and creation is going to be... Uh, you know, uh, re- redone and, and there'll be animals and all this kind of cool stuff uh, and it'll really be beautiful. And, and, you know, as beautiful as nature is, as wonderful as, uh, you know, God of wonders and all that, all the cruelty will be removed from it. You don't have to worry about these storms, these earthquakes, the tornadoes and all of the things that we read about. Animals are not going to pick you off, you know, as you're on the trail uh, you know, their cougars aren't going to sneak up on you. It's, it's all going to be wonderful. It'll be fantastic. Verse 22, For uh, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You might have encountered the phrase, the throes of death. Even though fallen creation is not in the throes of death, but rather it's in labor with birth pangs to be delivered. That always means the worst is yet to come. Uh, you know, labor is pretty intense and it gets more and more and more intense as the contractions come and then finally birth and there is a joy and the pain subsides. That's what's going to happen in the world. That When we talk about the great tribulation, Jesus said, you want to know what that's going to be like, what the future is going to be like? It's going to be like a woman in labor where these troubles are going to start to come like contractions and then faster and faster and harder and harder and screaming and yelling and, you know, and there's no kind of breathing that you're going to be able to do to alleviate that it's just coming and then the consummation will come it will give birth to what he's talking about here the sons of God will be revealed until now means during the current age in which we live and until the Lord returns the underlying assumption of these verses is that both you and creation will tend to suffer more and more until the coming of the Lord the horrible tragedies both natural and those men inflict upon other men they are not God's fault they're not even God's judgment we need to be careful as Christians every time something bad happens on planet Earth, we try and attribute it to God's judgment of a certain people group that we just don't like or we think God doesn't like. And, and you know what? Um, they did this in the first century. They came to Jesus and said, Hey, these, these things are happening. Is this God's judgment? And he passed that off. He says, Hey, no, don't, don't worry about that. And so don't be one of those Christians that, you know, I know I don't have to tell you guys this because you're sensitive, but I mean, there's some Christians, they get all excited about earthquakes in weird places. It's like, hey, yeah, those people, it's almost like they think, yeah, those people in Haiti, because they're all doing voodoo, they deserve to be buried under rubble anyway. And then there's people like Samaritan's Purse who think, what a tragedy that is. There's how many souls that didn't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Let's get down there and see what we can do to help these people and show them that God loves them. 
Uh, and so we want to we want to side with you know we want to be on that side of the equation. Uh, I, I don't want to consider different tragedies, the judgment of God. I remember when Katrina hit. Oh, it was God's judgment on those godless, you know, uh, Mardi Gras people. Except that New Orleans was, as I understand it, was on a higher level and didn't get destroyed like a lot of the rest of the cities did. So you figure that out. So just be careful. We're not, you know, it's not really God's judgment. These are just the inevitable results of sin entering God's creation by our choice. What's wrong with the world? I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. It was my choice. Adam and Eve represented each of their offspring. They chose for us and we reap what they sowed. But as I said, Jesus chose too. He chose obedience and to die on the cross in our place. With his representation, we've become new creatures. And now we await the final redemption of our bodies and with it the creation of a new universe. Wait for it. Amen.